Hello, I'm John Chambers, and welcome to Chambers Talks. It's a discussion about tech disruption going on around the world. And today I'm talking with one of the great technology leaders, the CEO and chairman of IBM, uh, Arvind Krishna. Uh, Arvind's been with IBM for 32 years, so you've watched the company really develop and reinvent itself. Uh, you've played a major role in expanding the markets and into new emerging technologies such as AI and cloud and quantum computing and blockchain. You're a member of the board of directors of the New York Federal Reserve Bank and Northrop Grumman. You're wicked smart. Uh, I couldn't even get into the schools that you you graduated from, but the IITs in India and then your master's and PhD in electrical and computer engineering at Illinois. Uh, I'm going to just kind of share an observation in the introduction, Arvind, if I may. IBM's done something special in the last three to five years. I've always been an IBM fan, and I was honored to start my career at IBM, but you're reinventing itself, yourself, and my strengths are pattern recognition. So when I watch what's going on with your customers, with startups, at key conventions, et cetera, it's a renewed energy and a renewed approach to innovation, almost through doing it yourself, uh, partnering and acquiring, all three of which are very hard to do. I saw at uh, the Montgomery Summit in LA a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where you all had 10 of your top people there, and they were there to meet the startups and understand what's possible and to build trust and relationships. Uh, your leadership in quantum computing, not getting excited about it the last couple of years, but over the last decade or two, uh, you saw AI where everybody's got excited about the last six months. You've been focused on it for five years or more. Uh, so I'd love to delve into those today. But I'd like to also start by just some comments and candidly, some extremely well-deserved compliments. Uh, you've done the largest software acquisition, very successful in Red Hat. And we'll delve into that a little bit in terms of internal innovation and acquisitions. But it is hard to do. Having done 180 acquisitions, I didn't have the courage to do anything near that size when I was at Cisco. And you all have used the strength of new ideas and approaches to reinvent yourself as well. But something might be surprised to the viewers as well is that if you think about the number one technology stock in the S&P 500 in 2022, it was IBM. You are a global leader, you're transforming growth, uh, and you're a good business partner. So I want to thank you, Arvind, for joining us today. I'm deeply honored. John, uh, first of all, you're very, very kind with those words, but it's also a pleasure to be here and speak with you. Your business record and personal record speaks for itself. And it is actually my absolute pleasure to spend this time here with you. Thank you. Well, for our uh, listeners, uh, we'll jump right in. Uh, IBM's digital transformation. Uh, it kicked off during the pandemic and then it's really accelerated post-pandemic. How did you redefine your objectives and your strategy during this time period? So John, the pandemic was a really interesting time because it forced us all to confront technology and technology very quickly became the answer for all the problems people were facing. Yes. If I look at it, the very first one was around networking. Everyone wanted uh, network access, remote access because people had to get access from wherever they were. And if I look at some of your past uh, experiences, uh, not just Cisco, but bringing all those technologies to bear in a secure way became essential. Now, as we began to worry about remote access and, um, and uh, making sure that work can happen for which technology, collaboration, all those tools were to bear, then we began to look at it and say, 
but this is going to be a here and now. How do we begin to actually think about the role that technology is going to play in helping enterprises scale and scale in a way that they can do so without all the cost and complexity that they had before? That really became our mantra. How do we help our clients? Because we very quickly came to believe that this is going to be a short time. And as you begin to get through this, how do you begin to get stronger at the end of it? And that is why, by the way, this pandemic is very different than recessions and depressions, where people begin to tighten their belt and then say, maybe I'm going to wait on investments beyond. We observe most of our clients actually use the time to say, let's invest more. So we come out of this period, be it a year, be it two years, in a stronger position for the future. And we wanted to be their partner for that, be the expertise to get them into a digital transformation, be the expertise to be able to do things in a way that is less labor intensive than before, because hopefully we'll come to talk of it. There is such a big demographic uh, change happening. And so you put all these things together and uh, the role we had to play was to get them there, leveraging the biggest technologies of our time hybrid cloud, and artificial intelligence. I think more and more, and we're going to talk about those in a couple of moments, uh, technology becomes, every company becomes a technology and digital company. Uh, along with that, however, is the skills gaps that often occur with your customers and our own company's employees. Uh, how do you approach that? And, and what is your focus on hiring and lessons learned that you could uh, share with listeners today about how you're going to address it and how you advise your customers to address it? Yeah. So, John, if you look at the skills gap, the world has benefited from a demographic dividend over the last 30 years. Uh, countries like China and India came into the global workforce. Uh, we had uh, people with more and more college degrees. That has all changed in the last, uh, we can say five years, just to put a point on it, but it probably has been coming. So we believe that now there is no more countries that are going to re-enter the global workforce. Actually, if you look at the birth rate in Japan, in China, even India, Western Europe, North America, we're all below what is called replacement ratios. So the number of skilled people is going to decrease. So how do you go approach that? One, we believe that we should not worry about geography. We should be able to go get the talent where it happens to be. The second, the number of people with advanced degrees is going to decrease. So we got to focus on skills, not degrees, meaning that can we take people and if they have the aptitude to learn and if they can learn those skills, because today I think we are all lazy. We use college degrees and four-year degrees or six-year degrees as a proxy for, okay, this is a smart person. Well, there's a lot of very smart people out there. So let's give them the ability to go leverage them and use them where they are. So if I combine those approaches, go where the talent is, and two, focus on skills, not degrees, I think those are really important uh, aspects to go and be able to go leverage uh, where the talent is because you're still going to need talent to be able to grow your company. You know, it's interesting. We're going to touch on vision and strategy. We're going to talk about how you develop your leaders and how you recruit. Uh, but also, uh, IBM's always had a, a strong focus on corporate social responsibility, good tech, if you will. How important is that to your culture, to your recruiting and retaining people, to your customers and to your shareholders? 
So John, I think that uh, I use the phrase that um, trust is a license to operate. So we operate in 170 countries. We service almost every industry and every sector. And you got to ask the question, why should they work with us? They could work with many others. And I do believe that trust is that essential. When I go and look somebody in the eye and say, look, if we commit to work with you, I'll commit to you that we are not going to use your data for somebody else. I can commit to you that we are not going to put your data out in a way that it can come back to harm you. And all of those elements are parts of what you're talking about, good tech. So we make hard commitments. We, when we say we will not use somebody's data, that goes all the way to encrypted data. If somebody wants to go look at it, they can go ask our clients for the key. And we are quite clear about that. That is not something they should come to us. We will not create backdoors in our, uh, in our programs or in our infrastructure. And we also are very clear about good tech. If we become aware that things are not good, we are going to back off doing them. A great example of this is around facial recognition. And I'm not debating the good uses of facial recognition. There are plenty. But yes. we are all also aware that there are issues with recognition based on skin tone. And that is why two years ago, almost three years ago now, we said we are, we are not going to provide uh, facial recognition for policing purposes because of those error rates. Now, we're going to keep working in research. If we can go improve those, then we could come back. But those are all examples of areas where we've got to be. Now, good tech has to be about how do you do things in a way that is fair, that doesn't advantage or disadvantage one community or creed over any other? How do you try to do all the things that make uh, our working lives as inclusive as possible so that everyone can bring their best self uh, to work and be able to participate fully? So to me, good tech is a lot about all of that. And you use the word CSR. Yes, it is about uh, corporate responsibility, John, but it's also good business. I kind of say purpose and profit go together because if we can get the maximum number of people in and our clients can trust us the most, our business will benefit along with us doing well uh, for the communities that we operate in. You know, it makes such a difference for the listeners. You, you think about the currency of a leader or a company. Uh, it literally is about track record, relationships, and trust. And I think you found the same thing that I have. Wherever you really give back to society and create that balance, you're also usually the market leaders. And uh, they go hand in hand. Let's jump into the new technologies. <laughs> you know, everybody got excited about AI. Uh, I started betting on it about four or five years ago, but you all bet way before then on AI. And you've been at the very forefront of the changes. And you can talk about how that also uh, bleeds over into quantum computing and talking about your leadership there as well. So how did IBM approach that? How do you keep reinventing yourselves in these new areas? How big do you think it's going to be? Yeah. So let's start with artificial intelligence, the topic that is on so many people's minds uh, nowadays. Yes. Right? And you're right. It's been years. So I go back to the moment where we ourselves helped put AI on the map was 12 years ago when this computer called Watson won a game called Jeopardy. And yes. suddenly people became aware, wow, AI is actually out of the lab. It can do things in real life. It can help uh, people really make progress with really deep work. Now I'll step back and say, we have these moments. So 
AI with Jeopardy was one moment. I could go back before that to things like Deep Blue winning chess was maybe another such moment. And after that, I would say Deep Learning, which so many people embraced is another one. And what is going on right now around foundation models or um, certainly chat GPT and open AI are probably the pre-exemplars of this current uh, set of technology. And so as I'm painting that arc, John, of going from sort of machine learning to deep learning to foundation models or large language models, these technologies are going to evolve. And the newer ones are maybe sometimes a hundred times more powerful than the prior ones. However, let's give credit to a lot of the universities that all of us are familiar with, because they actually invent and work on all of these. And many companies uh, are working on these. Uh, you know, certainly uh, Alphabet, Microsoft, uh, OpenAI, Facebook, and ourselves, um, amongst others. But one of the reasons I'm really excited about this current generation is what doesn't get written about. People are all excited by, oh, it answers me questions in real life. It can give me long answers, it can construct essays. I think that's interesting, but that's not the advantage. And I'll quantify the advantage. I think that these technologies are going to help us create tens of trillions of dollars of productivity before the decade is out. So between 10 and 20 trillion of productivity. But why is that? So far, AI always was, you took a lot of data, you used a lot of really expensive people to kind of label that data, you created a model. You needed another task and you created yet another model. So each one was a few weeks or months of work with very expensive people and very expensive infrastructure. These new techniques now, you make one model and now you can make the next 100 models really quickly. That's 100 times more productivity than you had before. Equally important, you can now get something into production over a weekend. You put those two together and suddenly now AI is within reach of the enterprise. How can I improve my onboarding of people? How do I improve my code to cash process? How do I improve fraud detection? How do I improve uh, recruiting? How do I improve taking away friction inside a enterprise when you have to have multiple teams collaborate? That's where I believe a lot of these techniques are going to apply. Certainly there'll be excitement in the press about the business to consumer aspects around you know, search and productivity and college kids writing essays or finding stuff. You know, um, uh, one of my children, my daughter, gave me a great analogy a few days ago. She says, look, there's an aspect of these where it's a much better control F for the geeks out there. Control F is a function in computer science, We're using it to find something on your computer or in a document. And so certainly these AI techniques are like a massive acceleration of that. But now going beyond that is the productivity aspect. Get something done in a minute, it used to take an hour. That's the advantage of uh, AI for the enterprise. The AI, in my opinion, is gonna be bigger than the cloud and the cloud was bigger than the internet. And I think it is the third major gigantic bet at the same time, what behind that quantum computing could be the bridge following that to completely changing technology. You all have been the leader there for so long. Uh, tell me a little bit about where you see quantum computing and when does it come to life? Yeah, um, I'll answer your question explicitly, John. 
But I'll just say, I think the internet or networking was a foundation that enabled cloud Agreed. to come to be. Cloud enabled AI to sort of come to be. And now we're going to go off into a different realm of quantum computing. So a little bit of a history lesson and then coming to quantum. We have been living on what is called von Neumann computing or computing that is also based on perfect recreation of things called bits, zeros and ones as we all like to think of them. And that's been a journey from 19, let's call it 1940 to 2010. But the world doesn't have to be like this. We all know there are these phenomenon called quantum physical phenomenon that really operate in a different space, a space that is more complicated, a space that is uh, richer and allows different things to happen. I actually believe that we are coming close to not all the uses, but probably the progress that can be made using bits, meaning supercomputers that are exaflops, you're probably not gonna get them to thousands of exaflops because the amount of power they consume, the size they'll become is too large. So how do we solve problems that we cannot attack with uh, normal computers? How do we attack problems? Like how do we produce more food through making a better fertilizer? How do we get better materials for carbon sequestration to help on climate change? How do we get a much better aspect of risk? Uh, not, I'll go tongue in cheek, John, not that financial risk ever bothers people, but of course it does. And how can we get a much better handle on financial risk? So this area of computing called quantum computing, which really is trying to take advantage of, um, of quantum physics to say that particles li live and interact. And we, we're not gonna get into the quantum physics at all, but it really gives these computers an ability to solve problems from the physical world, from the world of materials, from the world of energy, from the world of risk, in a way that classical computers just could not. Very, very simple example. I certainly love to drink coffee. I know not all of our audience might, but I do. Coffee works with you with the caffeine molecule. The caffeine molecule is impossible to simulate on a classical computer. By classical, I mean all of today's computers. It would take a computer somewhere near the size of this planet to go do that. Okay, now can you do it on a quantum computer? A quantum computer the size of this room could do that. So then to your question, where are we on this journey? Are these things real or are they science fiction? So quantum computers are measured in a dimension called qubits, standing for quantum bits. We have a 400 qubit quantum computer that is stood up on our cloud. We believe we'll have a thousand qubits here for you early next year. To do the caffeine molecule, you would need about a few hundred qubits. Now, now in full disclosure, these yes. quantum computers today are kind of noisy, meaning that they are error prone and they don't stay coherent or you can't compute on them for very long. But if we can get them to be a little bit less noisy, which we believe is possible over the next two to three years, and let them compute for a little bit longer, you put both those together, somewhere in three to five years, we are gonna get quantum computers doing things that are absolutely remarkable. They're not gonna replace. You don't want to run your bank balance on a quantum computer. 
you want to do that on a normal computer because you'd like the same answer each time. But for <laughs> these other problems, you're going to find somewhere in the next three to five years, quantum computers are going to do some remarkable things. Along that line, we talked earlier about the journey to the cloud uh, as the uh, third, second foundation in front of AI. Uh, everyone thought, including myself, that it was going to head toward a very large public cloud type environment, and it didn't. Uh, it basically, uh, hybrid clouds are the way of the future. Uh, you've brought that leadership in many ways into your enterprise customers. Your philosophy about where this is and how does it evolve going forward? Yeah. So, so John, we stood back five years ago and we said, let's look at our clients. So you get some clients are going to need to do things locally because just physical latency matters. So there is always going to be stuff at the edge and stuff in people's data centers. Economics matter. Not everybody is going to migrate everything. Sovereignty sometimes matters. Many countries say for some critical things, we need to run them in our own country. You start putting these together, and then you come to the classic enterprise, which I know that you understand probably better than most people, John. And enterprises hate to become beholden to only one vendor. They're always looking for choice. So we felt enterprises will always use at least a couple of public clouds. So you say they use a couple of public clouds. There is stuff at the edge. Sovereignty means that many nations are going to run things in their own physical national boundary. And economics dictates that some things are going to happen in the data centers of today. So that's the environment. We need to be able to function in that environment. Certainly the big public clouds will be winners but it will not be a one winner take all. They'll get be winners of a portion of that eventual infrastructure. And the others are going to be there. So then we felt we need to help our clients operate in that hybrid environment. Hybrid meaning it's not just one, but compare, composed of all these parts. And how do we make them use maybe two public clouds? How do we let them use the edge is the bet we made. And I think five years has shown that that's, Certainly a bet that looks more right than not right. Uh, you also mentioned uh, Red Hat, and that was one of the reasons that gave us such incredible confidence to be able to uh, both bring them in because we felt that Red Hat could really help in helping our clients along that journey of going to a, a hybrid cloud. And you know, open source is one way, not the only way to capture a lot of innovation. And we were able to do that leveraging those technologies. But I think the bet on hybrid cloud, together with these technologies called containers, together with Linux, is the way of the future. And you know, five years ago, people kind of looked at us and said, yeah, maybe, but I'm not 100% sure. I think today they react with, okay, no, you were right. It is going to be containers and it is going to be hybrid, and we do need to operate in these environments. You just pointed out that success today really is about bets you made three and five years ago and stayed with. Uh, the world's probably never had more disruptions occurring at the same time. Uh, what do your customers look for you to do and what are they telling you about the current world, you know, disruptions going on and what they expect technology to help them to be able to navigate through these disruptions? Yeah. So John, uh, we mentioned the demographic thing, right? Yes. The, all the workforce uh, things we hear, the great resignation, uh, there's fewer people in the workforce, Unemployment is at an all-time low. It's hard to get skills. 
I think you and I both see the same data. There's four and a half million tech jobs open. That's just in the United States. There's yes. half a million cyber jobs open. If you go over the world, that numbers multiply by 10 times. That's just one. Then we have interest rates, which means that it's a lot more expensive to spend capital. We have supply chain risks with all the geopolitical things that are happening. We have cyber risk that is going on. We have inflation in terms of both wages and in terms of commodity prices. So when you look at all those, I think all our clients are telling us, we actually, they tell us we're optimistic that we can emerge stronger, but we have to do that leveraging a lot more technology than only people. And so everybody is now telling us, how do I really make my company much more digital? How do I begin to flow things through where you take out internal friction? How do you begin to control and connect the front to the back? I'm almost sounding, John, like some of the things you used to say some years back, but how do you begin to really get things to flow straight through where the, their client in turn can see something, but the technology then makes it flow through to where the supply chain is now bringing it in for them to be able to add their value and bring it to the front. People want to go 24 by seven. Nobody wants to wait for a branch or an office to open up. And so our clients are telling us, and then the answers are cloud and artificial intelligence can help with that straight through. You got to help on the cyber. You got to leverage the technologies to be 24 by seven. So incredible resilience. People talk about, I don't need two nines of availability, meaning I can afford a few minutes of outage a day. They're not talking about, I don't want any outages in the month, get it down to seconds. Uh, and be always, uh, always on. So as you bring all this together, that's what they're telling us, and that's where they'd like to go. Take me to the next category of innovation. Uh, we talked about changes at IBM. So often when very large tech companies look at startups or ecosystem partners, uh, they either kill you with too much love or too little love. Uh, often there's internal conflicts about should we do it ourselves or others. Uh, if anybody has come close to mastering this, you all have in the last four to five years. Uh, what does it take to make that happen? Where you look at your partners and you say you understand their strengths, their limitations based on size and other capabilities. And your team always approaches, how does your partner win? How did you build that into the culture? Yeah. So, so a couple of observations, John, on this. One, no one of us can do all of the innovation that our clients want. So innovation is going to come from multiple places, hence the ecosystem or all the partners we work with. Yes. Second, we sometimes have a fallacy of a zero-sum game, meaning either we can win or our partner can win. And you say, well, we can compromise, let the partner win because we don't necessarily have that. But I think the zero-sum game is a fallacy. I think you win because you can expand the size of the pie. You expand the size of the pie by ourselves and our partner working for the benefit of the client. Suddenly the pie expands. Hey, I'll much rather take a smaller size of a bigger pie than try to fight over half a pie of a much smaller pie. Because so if you come from that philosophy, then you say, let's work together, whether it's SAP or Oracle or Microsoft or Amazon, or Cisco, or Salesforce, or Adobe, or smaller players like a MongoDB, let's work together. And if the client benefits, then there is a pie that both of us can share because I think clients are fair, so they'll give you something. 
It may not always be equal, but you'll get something. And by the way, that footprint when everybody else is saying, I'd rather work with you than with somebody else is to your benefit because that means people are saying good things about you when you're not in the room. And I think that 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 going forward has been a big, big uh, uh, acceleration for our business with our clients. It's a huge competitive advantage that most companies struggle with. And I could not agree with your analysis of the five. That was how I very much approached it at Cisco too with ecosystem partners. Uh, I'm moving on to a summary on, on lessons in leadership, uh, something that you could share uh, with the viewers. Many of them are very aspiring leaders, whether it's to be second or third line managers or CEO of their own company someday. Uh, you've said that you always try to get the hard things done first. Uh, what does this really mean to you? And can you give us an example that often the stories are what the listeners rem- uh, remember? Yeah, I'll give you a very, very explicit example. So I was uh, named to be CEO a few weeks before the pandemic hit us. And then the pandemic hit us. Yes. So the first thing you got to do is make sure the company can survive. Because if you remember back to March of 2020, John, Everybody was speculating, is the GDP going to go 5% less or 10% less or 30% less? And pretty reputed people had all those numbers out there. When you're in that shape, you got to say, okay, let's get the company liquid. Let's make sure we're going to be solvent. I don't know whether this is six months or two years. You do all that and that's a month in and now you're in April. You could afford to say, well, nobody's going to blame you. Let's just buckle down. Let's get through this tough time. <laughs> Maybe this will be the end of 21. Yeah. So half things first. We knew that we needed to reshape our portfolio. Right in the middle of the pandemic, we said, we're going to spin out a third of the company that became its own company called Kindrel. We're going to do this while everybody's remote in all places of the world. We know it touches a lot of clients, but we're going to go get that done. And we are going to start down an M&A path of acquisition to be able to bolster our own capabilities, because that in the end is a form of partnership, John. And we're going to get those things done. So we are even stronger when the pandemic ends, as opposed to then start doing all those things. That's an example of me saying, let's do the hard things together. So worry about solvency, worry about how do you get people productive and spin out a big part of the company and add capability with M&A, all sort of simultaneously, because that means the good times start sooner as opposed to doing these things in sequence. But I think, John, you asked for some lessons. The tough questions always come down to, well, if you're going to spin out a portion, there are some clients who love that. So do you focus on your existing clients or do you want to serve new needs at a different set of clients? And my answer always is a balance. Look, we don't want to let go. As we all know, our, our client incumbency is like gold. If you are a startup, that's what you go for. Can I get the first 100 clients? So it's not, so it becomes false to try to make it into a dichotomy. So you say, I want to maintain it. I want to balance it. But it could be that there's a few, two, three, five clients that I may not be able to serve well because that's the part I don't have in the company. Another classic dilemma that anybody who's in the product and tech world faces, should I overinvest in something that is coming down the road and starve what's here? Or should I kind of really focus on serving what I got and worry about the future later? 
again, to me, that's false. You got to balance it to say, well, when is that thing going to hit? Because if you, if you said earlier, right, three to five years ahead. So you got to put some money into what is three to five years later, but you also got to put some money into what is the thing that is providing the bread and butter of today. So, so you got to kind of always find a balance point and the balance point may vary for different companies. I mean, to me, a 70-30 rule, 70% kind of on what's here and now, 30% maybe for what's good for three to five years from now, feels right for us. Now, it's also going to be, I think, that innovation and R&D are more and more important. So you're probably going to have to spend more and more on those, given that there is a bigger and bigger prize behind many of these topics. You know, one of the questions I always like to ask is, what was a lesson learned that you know now that you wish you had known much earlier in your career? For me, as a young leader, I was kind of impatient. I just wanted to get things done. I viewed process as bureaucracy. And I've learned that actually process done right allows you to move with speed and accuracy that can occur otherwise. But it took me a long while to learn that and come up with playbooks, if you will, for everything from acquisitions to how you handle uh, economic downturns, et cetera. Is there one lesson that pops out to you you wish you'd known 20 or 30 years earlier uh, that your our listeners would uh, really benefit from? I think building consensus or what is called alignment with the teams. So John, similar to you, I was much more impatient. Now I'll agree, my teams may complain I'm still impatient today, but I used to be far more impatient. <laughs> and I believe logic wins. You see something, you describe it in pure logic terms, you kind of pretend everything is sort of a math equation and off you go. And I realized that if you can get people aligned where they all see the same end goal, that is far more powerful, even if it takes you a few weeks or maybe sometimes a couple of months to get everyone there, because then everybody's rowing in the same direction, even when you're not in the room. Everyone's sort of got the same end goal in mind. And there are always twists and turns in the road, but they all sort of then self-correct because they've kind of they deeply believe it. So they have the belief that that's the end point. They have the belief that we want to get there together. And I would always encourage people. Hopefully it's only a few weeks, but if it takes weeks or at our scale, maybe a couple of months, I would do that because then at the end of it, you're going 10 times faster than always trying to self-correct people and always trying to say, no, 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 remember, that's why we're trying to get something done. That cultural aspect is hugely, hugely important. I'd say tremendously powerful. It also allows everybody on the team to understand the trade-offs that you went through and why you made the decisions as opposed to revisiting those through the process. I can't think of a better question to end on than that. Arvin, I want to thank you very much for the time today. Uh, I'm going to take down notes after this because there's several takeaways I'm going to put into my playbooks. Uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, just a tremendous session. Thank you, my friend. John, thank you so much. You know, I always want to remind the uh, leaders at the end for listening. Uh, and uh, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and review the Chamber's Talks. Uh, leaves a, a five-star rating if we've earned it. Uh, and uh, hopefully it's one of your favorite uh, listening platforms. Arvin, thank you once again. And everyone, have a great day. Thank you, John. My pleasure.